0: We are on our way to getting two vaccine candidates approved by the FDA very soon. And the two leading candidates are using a technology that has never been approved in a commercial vaccine before. They both use messenger RNA to direct human cells to manufacture the spike protein found on the coronavirus. The body can then attack these proteins if they find its presence. And while this technology has been in development for two decades, the latest vaccines prove that the science is sound and could change the way future vaccines are made. The next big steps for vaccines will come on December 10th, when the FDA will discuss approval for the Pfizer vaccine, and then December 17th, when they'll discuss the approval for Moderna's vaccine. In all of their findings, both of these vaccines are over 94% effective against the coronavirus. For more on how these mRNA vaccines work and why they do so well, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today.
1: We all have messenger RNA in every cell in our body. It's what takes the message from the DNA, the code of the DNA and makes proteins, which is what does everything uh, makes our bodies work. And so what this does is takes that same process and gets our cells to manufacture the desired protein, in this case, the spike protein that's on the outside of the virus that causes COVID-19. And once our body learns, sees this protein and develops an immune reaction to it, when we're exposed to the actual virus, we'll mount a reaction, but the protein itself is harmless as are apparently these uh, these mRNAs. The potential here is that they could make your cells produce virtually any protein. So if there's a protein on the outside of a flu virus, they can do the same for the flu.
0: And one of the weird things is that we would not have had this or, you know, these messenger RNA type vaccines have been in work in the works for a little while. Scientists have been working on them. Definitely. That's why we were able to adapt so quickly when it came down to coronavirus. But You know, that kind of weird silver lining. We wouldn't have gotten here if not for the pandemic and that urgent need. Right, exactly. They were close, but this
1: really brought brought them all the way home. These technologies have been worked on for two decades at least, and there were sort of two key things. One was this mRNA technology that had been stalled for a long time. It was hard to get it to work. and and researchers finally did. And the other was identifying this spike protein on the surface of the virus that causes COVID. And that was done in part because of SARS-1 and and MERS, this other similar virus, where we realized that these coronaviruses had spike proteins. They all had spike proteins on their surface.
0: Let's get a little bit into the science of all of this because, uh, as you mentioned, this has been in development for two decades, but there was two big reasons you mentioned in your article on why they work so well first they're not grown in eggs or cells or anything and obviously as we've been saying they can be developed really quickly
1: right all you need is the genetic sequence of the protein that you want to make and that the chinese published that very early in this pandemic in january and so the researchers moderna first and then also BioNTech, this german biotech company that paired up with pfizer they got started really back in january with this and that's why they were able to turn it so quickly
0: Moderna was ready to go with the vaccine about two months after they got that genetic code from uh, the Chinese. So that bodes well for for this and other things, right? That how quickly we can do it. Now one of the other interesting things too that we heard out of the Pfizer vaccine candidate about how cold it needed to be stored at, the sub-zero temperatures that it needed to be held at. And we're finding out a little bit more about that is that the messenger RNA is very delicate. And so for that vaccine, they're kind of encasing it in fat cells or fat basically and they need it to be stored very cold so that that fat holds up and it protects it. That that was pretty crazy to me. I didn't understand that at first.
1: (laughs) Yep, yep. These little blobs of fat are what what protects it um, and keeps it from falling apart. Um, Moderna has figured out how to keep those swabs stable at a warmer temperature. So their vaccine needs to be kept frozen most of the time, but not as as cold as Pfizer's does. And also it can be refrigerated for the last couple of weeks, a month before before dosing. So that's a little bit more practical, but Pfizer has figured out a way to deliver its vaccine in coolers that will keep it cold, add dry ice, uh, and it stays super cold for a long time.
0: You did hear from some of the scientists that were kind of chief in in. Designing this messenger RNA type vaccines, uh, you know, what did they say? How did they uh, comment on, on all of this, and how quickly this has all been moving?
1: Well, they're obviously ecstatic because they've a uh, couple of people I spoke to at the University of Pennsylvania have literally spent their entire careers on on mRNA, and people thought they were crazy for pursuing this, uh, and now they've been proven right, um, and uh, you know, they're they're just. I talked to a guy at the government um, who figured out the spike protein and he said he was sobbing when he heard the news uh, how successful the vaccine was. So it's it's really a a triumph.
0: It really is. And as we mentioned, you know, the promise for the future. Right. Since this mRNA thing, you know, you just have to swap out what protein that you want to end up making. You know, they're already working on other vaccines uh, for Zika, chikungunya. They're working on ones that would help fight cancer. So this is really kind of uh, once we get over this coronavirus pandemic, these vaccines could be potentially used for so much more.
1: In scientific terms, Moderna has always said they were making a platform, not a product. You know, that that they were doing something that that could be used for a lot of different purposes. The cancer idea is still pretty uh, pie in the sky, but the, the idea is they could take a protein that's only on your cancer tumor cells, not in your regular cells target that, turn the immune system against the cancer cells uniquely and have an impact. And if they can do it in two months and get you personal a personalized cancer vaccine, that could make a big difference. Obviously, it's going to be expensive at first, so <laughs> right. it may not be practical for a while, but, but that's the idea.
0: But still, I mean, this is how science is evolving, and this is what we're exactly. hoping that will get us uh, over all these diseases and things that, you know, we're bound to encounter in the future. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There was also a lot of news out of the CDC this week when it comes to COVID-19. First, the CDC said that the standard 14-day quarantine can be shortened to 10 days or even seven days if certain criteria are met. It can be 10 days if you're showing no symptoms at all and seven days if you get a negative test. There was also new guidelines released when it comes to testing before and after travel. We saw a lot of travel during Thanksgiving and they expect just as much during Christmas and New Year's. For more on all these guideline adjustments, we'll speak to Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post.
2: Now, this is a little complicated, so I'll do my best. And, and, (laughs) you know, this is a science-based decision, but it's also one based in how do people actually behave. They felt that anecdotally they were hearing from the various public health agencies, you know, the county health departments, hey, people are not cooperating with the quarantines. They're not doing it. So keep in mind, let's say you've become exposed to the virus. That's when you get quarantined. Not that you have it, not that you're infected, but you might have it. You get identified through contact tracing. You were at the party where someone was known to have the virus. The health department says, okay, you got to quarantine for 14 days. Well, what happens is people they don't want to do that for 14 days it's right. too long they're going to miss work they're going to lose their job maybe they they need the money and it creates a kind of a lack of cooperation a lack of compliance so they looked at it and said okay what if we make it a little bit easier we'll still get capture most potential infectious people we'll make it a little bit easier we'll give two alternatives one is 10 days if you monitor your symptoms every single day and never have any symptoms. You're supposed to make sure that you don't have a fever, don't have a cough, aren't fatigued. The second thing is you can cut it to seven days if you have a negative test within 48 hours of the end of that seven-day period. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this is kind of what a lot of people were probably doing already, keeping quiet about it. Let's see if I have any symptoms. If not, I'm all good in their heads, right? Because they want to avoid this very strict 14 days. As you mentioned, for a lot of people, they could miss work. They could lose out on a job, a lot of stuff like that. So definitely, it makes sense that they could reduce it that way. But it also depends on testing. You know, you got to make sure you get tested in the right period of time. I did ask
2: this, and they clarified that that either of the two main kinds of tests can be used in that Last 48 hour period, either the rapid response antigen test or the PCR test. The PCR is more accurate, but it takes a little longer to get the result, and sometimes a couple days or more, maybe right. three days. But, um, you know, to some extent, like you said, people are doing what they're going to do. The government is not going door to door checking on people. A lot of this is voluntary. But the contact tracers, I mean, they're trying to do their job. They call someone up and say, hey, you know, we think you may have been exposed. People don't answer the phone when when they get a call from the health department. They're like, "Hey, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to be part of this system." So they're trying to get better compliance. It eases the burden on the health departments, and it's a little more realistic for people. And it will still capture probably ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the cases.
0: The CDC also. Release new guidelines about testing before and after traveling. We know that was a huge issue with Thanksgiving. People just rushing to go get tests and Christmas and New Year's is coming up. What's the new guidance there?
2: What they said before, I mean, like a week or so ago, is what people have said is, well, try to get a test before you, you take a trip. Now they've gotten a little more specific. They're saying one to three days before your trip, get tested, number one. Number two is when you return from a trip, Three to five days afterwards, get tested. And there's another wrinkle in it, which I, now that I think about it, I need to maybe add to my my latest story. Is they're saying that when you come back from a trip, you should essentially stay home. Right. You should essentially quarantine when you get back from the trip, as if you got it on the trip. And they're saying for seven days, cut out all non-essential activities. Which is, again, like, are, are people really going to do that? I mean, I you know I i have not been traveling but i have friends who are and you know when they come back from a trip they come wandering by you know and we socially distance i mean it's been i think it's good to put the message out there that when you've been on the road or in an airplane when you come home you need to spend seven days of assuming that you might have gotten it no parties no running around just take it easy for seven days
0: and that's a tough thing too right when people take some vacation time days off of work They only allot the days that they're actually going to be gone. (laughs) When you come back on, you know, Saturday or something, you're back to work on Monday. And this is the difficulty in controlling people. People are going to do what they want. It's tough. That's why they say it's not worth it. Maybe just don't go travel. But yeah, I mean, it's very tough all around. So we'll see how this new guidance maybe helps. But uh, who knows? I still get this overwhelming sense that people are going to do what they want to do. And that's that's the tough part when we just see cases rising everywhere.
2: People are going to do, they're going to behave in a certain way. But if you can nudge behavior toward a better path, that'll make a difference. Particularly, you know, right now, where we're in the middle of a bad period. And I think people understand what's going on. But it bears repeating that we are in the middle of a, of a surge and the numbers are going to keep going up as the virus spreads more easily in some of the big population centers over the next few weeks. And so we're in for a very rough patch before we hit the sunshine, if that makes any sense.
0: Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: And we know that the airline industry has taken a huge hit during the pandemic, and some of these declines could be permanent. A new analysis says that business travel could be permanently cut by 36%, and that could affect the way you travel. Regular consumers could see higher ticket prices and reduce routes to some of your favorite places. For more on how these declines could affect you, we'll speak to Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal.
3: This started with a group of, um, a really sort of eclectic group of airline industry people who started meeting regularly as almost, sort of a support group, just people isolated in the pandemic who are involved in the airline industry. And they invited me to join them. Um, One's a consultant, one's a former CEO, one's a consumer advocate. And as we talked through these issues of what were going to be the lasting changes, we were really frustrated that there wasn't good data on what might be the impact of changes in business travel patterns. So we decided to go find it ourselves and did a whole lot of research and really looked at the purposes of business travel, there's a lot of data out there about how much people spend on business travel and stuff, but not not so much a breakdown of what are you going for? Because what you're going for really impacts whether that trip could be replaced with uh, technology or not. And so we came up with a pretty good breakdown of how much of business travel is conferences and meetings, how much is intra-company training sessions and all, how much is sales calls and things like that. And then in seven different categories, looked at what could be replaced with Zoom meetings, Skype meetings, in any kind of digital technology. And that led us to say, at a minimum, we think 19% of all business trips are permanently gone because of the changes in the way business is done, and at a maximum, 36%. And 36%, that's a big number. That's a, a third of you know all business travel, and that would have a huge impact on airlines and travel.
0: And as you mentioned, what can be replaced with technology when the pandemic hit very hard and businesses had to transition to this work-from-home model? It happened very quickly, but we also realized that we can do it and do it very effectively. So a lot of these training sessions, things like that, can be relegated to these virtual events rather than having to fly people out. And so what is the consequence of that? If business travel is reduced by that much, and in some cases you mentioned it could be permanently, what does that mean for regular consumers?
3: At big airlines like American, Delta and United, business travelers essentially subsidize vacationers, subsidize cheap tickets. Uh, You can think of it as the people in the front of the airplane basically pay more than the people in in the back of the airplane. And if there are fewer people in the front of the airplane willing to pay higher prices, then the people in the back of the airplane presumably would have to pay more. So I think you'll, you'll see airlines try and raise leisure fares. Now, that's very difficult to do for two reasons. One is there is a lot of low fare competition out there. About 20% of the US market now is flown by low cost airlines and they're they're going to be in the sweet spot. They're not going to be interested in raising prices necessarily, but there is going to be strong demand for leisure travel, I think. And the other part of it is that people who travel on their own are very price sensitive. And so if you raise prices too much, you can really dampen demand with that. I think the other change that happens is that you'll see fewer flights in schedules. A lot of airlines build a lot of frequencies into their schedule because that's what appeals to business travelers. 12 flights a day to New York, that kind of thing. If you have a robust schedule, then you can attract business travelers with it. Well, if there's less demand for business travel, then I think you see schedules shrink. And that takes options away from travelers, take seats out of markets. And so to New York, to Los Angeles, to Chicago, to Dallas, to big business travel markets, there might be fewer flights in the future.
0: One of the people that you spoke to kind of compared what's going on with the airline industry with what's happening to brick-and-mortar retail stores and how it's been devastated by e-commerce. Can you expand on that a little bit and kind of explain that analogy?
3: Yeah, I think, the, I think the the parallels are pretty striking. You know, basically, out of pandemic necessity, certainly in e-commerce, the trends were changing anyway, right? We were already ordering more and more stuff online. But with the pandemic... Very few people go to the mall anymore, and you just order from Amazon or from whoever. And people have gotten more comfortable with that. And so it changes people's patterns. There's going to be lasting impact. And you can already see it in malls repurposing themselves because they're not going to have retail stores in the future and things like that. And I think that technology changes in business travel driven by, as you said, the necessity of the pandemic. But we've gotten more comfortable with that, and we found that it can be quite efficient. not going to replace everything. You're still going to need to go shake hands with your client and sign the deal and recruit the new business and all that kind of stuff. But what we found was there are lots of business trips that don't involve personal relationships. And those are easily replaced with technology. And it does get more efficient. People do get more comfortable with it. The technology is readily available to them. And if you can have a one-hour Zoom conference call with your client instead of a two-day business trip to spend an hour at lunch with them or whatever it might be, then you can become much more efficient with the technology. And so in that sense, I think it's the comfort and the efficiency that's the real parallel with retail.
0: Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for
2: having
3: me.
0: Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.